Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem, and Edomia, and from far beyond Jordan, and from Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Father, as we look at this passage this morning, I pray that you might teach us the way that you work, because you are God. May we, as Mark intended throughout his gospel, see Jesus Christ not only as our Savior, not only as the Lord, but also as the Son of God. May we understand what that means in our lives, in the world around us, in his ministry. And Lord, may you use it to challenge our hearts, to challenge the way we look at the scriptures, to challenge the way that we look at Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, work in our hearts and change us today, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Mark has been hammering home this topic throughout the time that he started his gospel. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What does it mean? Jesus Christ is coming now into his ministry, and Mark is trying to demonstrate to everyone not only that he is the Son of God, but what that means. We had the testimony from Mark himself, the testimony from Old Testament prophets, the testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of God himself at John's baptism. It's further vindicated by all the miracles that he's doing. And throughout the course of his ministry, Jesus is going to repeatedly demonstrate his, vis- his deity to those that are around him. His power that goes with that deity over Satan and demons. Power over disease. Power over sin. Last week, power over Sabbath and rituals and all that we're supposed to be doing. And even his disciples, as they immediately drop what they're doing to follow Christ, demonstrate the power that Jesus Christ has. Think about where you are in life now. We don't know exactly where the disciples were in life, but where are you in your life? Whether you're starting a career, whether you're into your retirement age, whether you're hoping to get there soon, wherever they were in that course of things, as soon as Jesus said, follow me, they dropped everything and followed him because of the authority behind the Son of God. And as we get through this passage, we're going to notice also a very vast change in direction in Jesus' ministry. He has been going and he's been teaching where every time he teaches. Up until this chapter, he goes to the synagogue and he opens the word. And as one of the rabbis, he teaches at the synagogue. And as we get to chapter 3 and verse 7 and following, we find that he pulls himself away from there. Now, why has Jesus begun to change his focus? In fact, there's only one other passage in Mark where it talks about him going to the synagogue in chapter 6. The rest of the time, he's going to begin teaching 
at the countryside. Teaching from a boat out on the lake to people sitting on the, on the shore. Why is this all changed? Well, the platform of his ministry changes because what happened in verse 6? After all that he'd done, the healing that he had done, the teaching that he had done, you have the Pharisees and the scribes getting together with the Herodians and they're plotting to kill him. Is Jesus ignorant of that plot? He knows what's in their hearts. And as we read the other Gospels, we find it's not time for that quite yet. So Jesus pulls himself out of that context, puts himself into another context, where he can continue doing what he said he was going to do in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, sharing the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so all of this is taking place as we get to Mark chapter 3 and verse 7. And a couple of things we want to look at today. First of all, the power of his ministry. Jesus Christ had a powerful ministry. Was it a long ministry? He didn't begin his ministry till age 30. By age 33, he was giving his life on Calvary for your sins. It was a very short ministry as he died for your sins and mine. But at that very short ministry that he has, is very powerful. And we see that as we see what's happening beginning in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 7. It says there, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him. Jesus right now is in this, it's a crisis time in his ministry. Not a crisis for Jesus Christ, but the crisis in all the events that are coming together. Because now you have this huge interest of the crowds that are coming to see him. Why are the crowds coming to see Jesus Christ? There's a lesson in this for us. Because we're going to find as we look, they came because he taught as no one else. But they really came because they wanted to be healed. And he's going to reference that here and again. And his disciples are looking at this. If you were one of Jesus' disciples, and you see great crowds coming to the synagogues and to the homes that he's staying in, and now he withdraws himself into the country, and greater crowds are coming to see him, what would you think is the key to ministry? Just keep on healing and things are going to be great. You know, We're going to outdo Joel Olstein soon. They're all coming from everywhere. They're coming out of the woodwork. And the disciples are looking at that. And Jesus is about to take them apart. He's going to begin teaching and training. And he's going to tell them to be careful of the crowds that can be very fickle and shallow. And many of the people in the crowds that came to see Jesus, there may have been thousands and tens of thousands of times. He fed 5,000 men. Not counting women and children on the hillside. So thousands of people were coming to see him. But by the time he dies on Calvary and his followers are gathered together, they fit in a room of about 120 people. Because most of the crowds left him when the truth was what they had to grapple with. When their lives needed to change and when he was no longer healing their diseases. So this is going to be part of what's happening as Jesus comes with these crowds and his disciples and takes them apart. And follows along the Sea of Galilee into the countryside. And it tells us here that at this point his disciples are part of a larger group of disciples. You remember when he called Peter, Andrew, James and John and he called them to be his disciples. Follow me. Well were they the only ones following him at that time? Now, there was a large group of disciples following Jesus Christ. The word disciple means learner. It means student. It indicates a desire to follow him as their teacher. So you've got this group of people, his disciples that are following him. And now he's going to do something very, very interesting. In the midst of that, he's going to call them apart. And we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. So he wants to teach, especially these disciples, these 12 that he's going to call apart, that you can't really... Trust the crowds 
coming just as crowds. Do we ever get caught in that same kind of a predicament? You look around and what do you want to see? We want to see our church growing. What does that really mean? You know, when I first came and started working at the church here, and even other churches I've worked at, especially as a younger guy, my thought was the church growing means people in the pew. Is that the kind of growth that Jesus Christ is going to focus on here? And his disciples are looking and saying, this whole momentum of Jesus Christ and his kingdom and the gospel of his kingdom is growing. And how did they picture that? People standing around Jesus Christ and hearing what was going on. And what we're going to find is what happens in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, verse 66, it says, And many of his disciples, those that had been learners, those who had been students, those who were following him as their teacher, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Do you know why that happened? We won't turn there this morning, but if you turn to John chapter 6, it happens because Jesus goes from doing all the healing he's doing to giving them this message on, I am the bread of life. And if you're going to follow me, there's a commitment that's going to be required for following me. That following me is being so committed that you are eating my flesh and drinking my blood. And he's talking about the fellowship that needs to be there and the commitment to Jesus Christ. And when the crowds heard that, verse 66 tells us, many of them turned back and no longer walked with him. Other places in the gospel it says, they looked at that and say, this is a hard saying. See, they were happy to have their ears tickled. They were happy to have Jesus Christ doing things to heal them and and making their lives better in a very physical way. But when it came down to spiritual commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they said, well, that's kind of harsh. Do we have that problem in our churches today? If you're you're coming here because you're enjoying having your ears tickled, you're in the wrong place. Because Jesus is looking and saying, I want to change lives. And he's going to begin changing drastically the lives of 12 men in this passage. But the gospel of the kingdom of God is intended to change hearts and lives. And it means following Jesus Christ. And he's going to talk about that. what that means as he goes further on in this gospel of Mark and throughout all of the gospels. And he's trying to teach these men, especially as he pulls them aside this morning, the fact that you can't always trust the crowd. And look at where the crowd came from. Jesus Christ's ministry at this point is amazing. If you look further down in verse 7, it says a great crowd followed him from Galilee. We kind of understand that. That's where his ministry was centered, around the Sea of Galilee. But now he says they also came from Judea and Jerusalem. And from parts even 100 miles south of that, they're coming to follow Jesus Christ, to be near him. And then they're coming from beyond the Jordan, to the east of the Jordan. And the interesting thing about that is not only are Jews coming now, but if you look at that region they talk about from beyond the Jordan, now you've got a mixture of Jews and Gentiles coming. And then he further says, and they're coming from Tyre and Sidon. And that was predominantly Gentiles. So you're getting kind of a mixed crowd that's coming to see Jesus Christ now. And it's growing, and the momentum's going. And if you're one of the disciples, you know, that are sitting there getting excited about all this, you think, keep it coming. This is great. It won't be long before we establish the kingdom. Is it any wonder that the disciples had a rough time getting their mind around what Jesus Christ was really there to do? That he was going to give his life a ransom for many? Because as Jewish men, they had longed for, longed for the coming of the kingdom, longed for getting rid of, throwing off the yoke of Rome and those who were there and being the ones who were in charge. And suddenly they're seeing thousands of people come. 
and being impacted by Christ and people excited enough to travel distances to hear Jesus Christ. So what does it look like to the disciples? The kingdom is on its way in, and it was, but it wasn't the kingdom that they were anticipating. And so all of this is happening as Jesus becomes more and more popular. And to the point, verse 9, it says, And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him, because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For verse 10, For he had healed many, so that they, those, all those who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And you look at this, and it's an interesting picture, because Jesus Christ... Often we picture him teaching for a boat, and I've heard it preached that way, and there's some truth to it, but he would go out on a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and he would preach, and folks would sit on the the hillside, and the acoustics would be just perfect for that. But Jesus didn't get in the boat for acoustics. Jesus got in the boat because so many people were coming, and when they came, they didn't stay in their pews, okay? And think, now, I don't have this ability, so don't, don't take this away. Don't, don't hear this wrong. Wake up for a moment and listen to what I'm saying. If I had the ability to heal, if whatever ailment you had, all you had to do was come up and touch the fringe of my suit jacket, and you would be healed, you wouldn't be sitting there. Because you want to be able to touch the one who can heal you. And as Jesus was meeting with thousands of people coming to see him, they would press around him so much so that he's worried about being crushed because they want to do what? They didn't come just to hear. In fact, they didn't come predominantly to hear. They came to touch the Savior. Because when you touch the Savior and Lord, you're healed. And so they were crushing him so much. They said, you know, have a boat ready because what was Jesus Christ's purpose? Was the purpose and goal of Jesus Christ's ministry to have huge crowds of people come to him and be healed? What was the purpose of the healing? The purpose of the healing was God's stamp of approval on the message. And so Jesus is saying, lest I be crushed, get a boat, have it ready. I'm going out on the sea so that I can sit there in the boat and do my primary ministry and teach about the gospel of the kingdom. And so folks kept coming, and they kept coming in these huge crowds, and they pressed around him. And you think about that, because what other alternative did these folks have? How many of you have had surgery in the last couple of years to correct something? It's amazing what modern medicine can do. Now, they're still practicing medicine, by the way, and you're the guinea pig, okay, when you go in there. But they can do all kinds of things nowadays. In Jesus' day, how advanced was the medicine? If you were sick, you were in trouble. And suddenly there's somebody who you go up, you touch the hem of the garment, knowing that this is the Son of God, and you are immediately healed. You know, Stephen had cataract surgery. Now they give you all this list. Now this is what you've got to do for the next four or five days. And then you've got to come back for the other eye. And, and, you know, you go through all that stuff. Or if you have open-heart surgery, they can do amazing things. They can repair valves. They can get things ticking again. They weren't ticking right before. And that's my technical terms. And they can go through all of those things. But there's all these restrictions. And if you have surgery on your heart, how long does it take to recover? Months, sometimes a year. And when Jesus healed, Jesus healed. You were done. It was finished. You were good. And so people are coming and crushing around and pressing tightly, just wanting to touch him. And Mark chapter 6, verse 56 says this. It reports later in Jesus' ministry. And whenever he came into villages or cities or countrysides, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that he might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. 
Can you imagine that? We don't, we don't even think about that often. I think about Jesus' teaching. I think about all these miracles. But in the midst of everything happening, Jesus Christ is walking by into towns and villages. Sick people are reaching out, touching the hems of his garments. And it says here, as many as did that were healed. The power of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark is telling us this, again, to illustrate to us what it means to be the Son of God. We have no concept about what it really was like to walk with Jesus at that time. And then in verse 11, it says, Not only is all this healing taking place, as this enthusiasm continues to grow, as crowds begin to come, but in verse 11 it says, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Were they right? Did they want to further the ministry of Jesus Christ by crying out, You are the Son of God? What's going on here? Again, we're seeing not only the power of the Son of God to heal, but as we talked about when we talked about this earlier, we're seeing the power of the Son of God over Satan and his whole realm. And these demons who were content would rather stay where they were, knew they were about to be cast out. And as they're doing that, they're proclaiming, not out of loyalty or love, but out of fear, you are the Son of God. And as Jesus Christ commands them, they do exactly what he tells them to do. Was that normal in that time? You remember when Jesus Christ was brought, the, the, the man who was throwing himself into the fire and cutting himself and all of those things, and people had tried to help him, and no one was able to help. When Jesus cast out the demon, it's gone. And not only that, but as they're coming and they want to cry out that Jesus, you're the Son of God, he demands that they be quiet, and they obeyed. The power of the Son of God. And so Mark is setting all of this power up as he's getting ready to go through the rest of Jesus' ministry and demonstrate who he is and how he works and what he's going to do in an unparalleled ministry that people had never seen before. They were amazed. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 27. It says, They were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the evil spirits and they obey him. So even this shallow crowd that was following and mostly wanting to be healed looked and said, this is something special. This is something different. As the Son of God teaches, the whole nation begins to to notice what's going on. It happens in Judea. It happens in Jerusalem. It's happening to the east. It's happening to the south. And they're seeing Jesus Christ and his ministry is drawing people in. And in the midst of all that, what would you expect Jesus Christ to do? What would he have done if he had been a shallow preacher in the United States of America at that point? Well, you go and you, you get a hold of an old stadium that's available, and you fill it up with people. And you preach in such a way that it makes them feel good about themselves. If Jesus Christ had preached some of the feel-good messages that we get today, would the crowds ever have left him? They left him because they didn't want to have to grapple with the truth. And so we get to this whole time, but Jesus, instead of trying to make this thing grow larger and larger, what does it say that he does in verse 13? And he went up on the mountain. And called to to him those who he desired, and they came to him. Jesus Christ steps out of all this popularity, out of all of these people coming, wanting to see him, to touch him, to be a part of what's going on there. And Luke chapter 6, a parallel passage to this, tells us that his next step, as he goes up into this mountain, is to spend the whole evening in prayer. Luke chapter 6 verse 12 says, In these days, the same days that Mark is talking about with the crowds crushing in and everything happening, he went up to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve 
whom he named apostles. Jesus Christ has called together from all of his disciples 12 men. 12 men who are going to have a special mission. But before he does that in their lives, before he challenges them, before he puts them in this position, it says in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, prays, how long? Spends all evening in prayer. Again, we, we've noticed before when we looked at Jesus Christ praying, what was Jesus Christ talking about? What would he need to pray about? And I think we find a beautiful picture of how Jesus Christ probably spent most of his earthly time in prayer in John chapter 17. And again, we're not going to go through that for sake of time. But in John 17, Jesus Christ begins the same way that he taught his disciples to pray, with praying for the will of God to be done. He's about to call 12 men who are not at all qualified for the position he's about to give them to do the most important job in the world. And I think he's praying, God, may your will be done. This is our plan. It's been our plan from the beginning. Jesus isn't looking out across his disciples and saying, this is the best I can do. These are the 12 best candidates. We're going to talk about why that's not the case in just a moment. But as Jesus Christ, I'm assuming he spent time in prayer that God's will would be done. He probably, just as he did in John 17, prayed for those 12 men that he was about to call. Think about it for a minute. What would it have been like to have been one of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ? These were ordinary men until about they're going to get an extraordinary call from an almighty God. But before that happens, they're ordinary people. They're people like you and me. People that were just mingling around with the other followers of Jesus Christ. And they're about to get the greatest call in history. And before he does it, Jesus Christ is praying for those men because are those men going to be challenged? I think about it and it's like certain aspects in the timeline of being an apostle of Jesus Christ are very exciting. Would it have been exciting to be with Jesus Christ while he's doing all these miracles? Would it have been exciting to watch crowds throng so much so that you've got to have a boat ready just to rescue the Savior from getting crushed by this humanity that just wants to touch him and be healed and hear what he has to say? And think about the few that got to go with him to the Mount of Transfiguration and see his glory. Would that have been an amazing thing? How about being on the hillside, and it's not going to happen too long from now, when you've got five loaves and two fish, and Jesus Christ feeds over 5,000. And you're picking up baskets of leftovers. I always say, I don't like leftovers, and then I read that and say, well, maybe I need to change my mind. Because God produced leftovers. And there's leftovers from all this going on. And you watch and you see this happen. And over and over and over again, you're being impacted not only by the actions of Christ, but then he sits down with you after he teaches the masses all these parables that they don't understand. And he teaches you what it means. And you hear a message, not from the preacher, but from the Savior. And so they're getting all this, and I think Jesus Christ is praying to prepare them for that. But what happened to the apostles after Jesus left? What did he tell them was going to happen? You know, they were getting booked all over the place, right? They were, they were scheduling stuff online. Churches everywhere wanted the apostles to be there. They had to go into hostile territory with the message of Jesus Christ, knowing exactly what that message had done to their Savior. But the message that they were given to give out because it was the message of life. And as they did, one after one, they gave their lives for that message. They suffered for that message. And so I assume that that night, Jesus Christ is praying for them to have strength through that as well. He knew what was coming. 
That God would hold them together and to give them the strength and the power to do those things. So he spends all night in prayer. When was the last time you prayed all night? And I'm not saying you got in bed and you couldn't sleep, so you laid there praying. Intentionally pray. When was the last time you put that many hours into prayer? And again, can I encourage you? Get together with folks here for prayer. There's a couple reasons folks normally don't come to the church prayer meeting. Sometimes it's just because you don't have the time and you don't want to do it. That's a whole different area and problem. If we can't, after last week that we talked about, if we can't give God one day a week, I wouldn't want to stand stand before him one day to hear how I did. But not only that, sometimes people don't come for prayer, and I understand it because it's a little bit intimidating because we're not used to praying out loud. Sometimes it's like, well, I'm not sure I can pray for more than five minutes. There's all kinds of... Jesus Christ goes to prayer, and the Son of God spends all night in prayer. And I'd encourage you, be a part of that here. Because if it was important for Jesus Christ, if Jesus Christ stopped his huge ministry, crowds coming, you say, I've got to set 12 men up, ready to minister for me, so I'm going to pray for them all night. What do you think needs to be done for our church and our church ministry? What do you think needs to be done for the folks in our church? What do you think needs to be done for your family members who don't know Jesus Christ, who have walked away from the Lord? And well, well, Pastor, I'm burdened for them. Are you burdened enough to come and pray for them? We want to pray with you. And so we get together on Sunday nights, and we spend an hour in prayer. And again, don't let it be an intimidating time. We break off into groups, and then, oh no, if we break up into smaller groups, now I'm on the the hook. Now I've got to pray, and I'm not comfortable with that. Well, at least I can't vouch for the ladies. Maybe they're a little nastier than the men. I don't think they are. Okay, but come pray with a group of men. If you want to sit there and listen and just see what's going on and pray and pray with us as we're praying, do that. Do that to be a part. I guarantee you what's going to happen. I've seen it happen over and over again. People come who are a little bit, they're intimidated. They didn't really want to come. Prayer meeting's a tough place to come. It kind of puts you on the spot sometimes if you're not careful. And they sit there, and I've had men come, and they'll sit there for two, three, four weeks just listening. And I'm okay with that. As our hearts are knit together in prayer, and your hearts will be. When Jesus Christ prays with his disciples, as we look at that throughout the Gospels, why do you think they yelled, they cried out to him, Lord, teach us to pray like that. As hearts are knit together, as we see God work and move, as we pray. But every time I've seen it happen, you know what happens after three or four weeks? Suddenly, this voice that I'm not used to hearing opens up and starts to pray. Because you realize it's not for a competition. In fact, Jesus Christ has a lot to say about those who pray as a part of a competition to look good. It's an opportunity for us to cry out to God, to talk to God. And it doesn't have to be in special vocabulary, and it doesn't have to be in a certain format. Well, there, is, there are formats from Scripture that we kind of need to follow, but it doesn't have to be somebody who's been trained to pray out loud. But I say that because Jesus Christ puts such a priority on prayer in his ministry. And if God's going to bless the ministry here, it'll be because people are praying. So I encourage you to do that. Okay, beat you up enough over that. But prayer is such an important thing as we look into this for Jesus Christ. And then after spending this whole night in communion with his father in prayer, he now begins this transition for the disciples of taking a group that had been a large group of disciples, and he's going to whittle it down to, here are the 12 that I'm going to pour my life and soul into for the next three years. And he's going to pick out these men. And the interesting thing about that is he says, and he went up to the mountain and he called to those, he called to him those whom he desired. 
Jesus Christ didn't bring 150 people up to the top of the mountain and put out a sign-up sheet and said, okay, if you want to volunteer to be one of the 12, you sign up here and I'll get back with you. Now, he didn't look and say, okay, if you want to be one of the 12 apostles going out with my power to give out the gospel and to cast out demons, and one day you are going to turn the world upside down for Christ, raise your hand and I'll get, the, I'll get back with you soon. Jesus Christ looked and said, these are the 12 men I want. And keep that in mind because we're going to take just a minute as we close in just a few minutes to look at these 12 men and see whom he picked. None of these 12 turned in an application. None of them submitted a resume. He didn't go on Indeed.com to pick out the best opportunity with his disciples that he could get. Jesus Christ looks and he picks those that he had already chosen to be his disciples and his representative. Twelve very ordinary men, some of them extraordinary that he picked them. Not because they were extraordinary, but because they shouldn't have been picked in our, in our way of looking at things. If you were going to put together twelve Jewish men to turn the world upside down for Christ, how many of you would put a tax collector in there? If you wanted them to be sold out for the gospel and the gospel first, would you pick a zealot that's really already, he's, he's all caught up in his politics? All of these things are going on. And then, and I don't know if I'll ever get my mind fully around this other than I know it was God's will and he had the plan already put together. Why in the world when you're picking only 12 would one of them be a traitor? And you knew it from the beginning. And you loved him like you loved the other 11. And he's with them. for all, He sees all of these things. And so all of this is going on. And I think a lot of it goes to what Paul kind of gives us a small picture into in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Where he says, For consider your calling, brothers, that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that it is as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the lord when you see these 12 men by the time they get to the point where they are at pentecost there's nobody to boast in but jesus christ it's boasting in what god did in these men's lives and we're going to take a minute and look at these followers to see why that would be the case jesus christ calls them up he lets them know that i am choosing you in fact he reminds them of that in john 16 15 just before he goes back you did not chose me but i chose you and appointed you that you should go and so he appoints 12 men look at verse 14 it says and he appointed 12 whom he had also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons two reasons he appointed the 12 Number one reason he appointed the twelve was what, according to that verse? That they might be with him. Can you imagine? Can I tell you, at some level you ought to be able to imagine, because what are we supposed to be doing? Abiding in Christ, being in his word, communing with him in prayer, doing all of those things. But he looks at these twelve, he says, number one thing I want you to do before you do anything else, you need to be with me. So many people want to be serving before they're spending time with the Savior. And as he looks at these 12 men, their worth in service is going to come from the time that they spend with Jesus Christ. 
He said, I want you to be with me. I want you to watch how I do things. I want you to understand how my word works. I want you to be doing what I've asked you to do, not because of who you are, but because of who I am. And that takes knowing me. How well do you know the Savior today? We know the stories. But how well do you really know the Savior of this book? And so Jesus Christ looks at these men and says, number one, I want you to first of all be with me. Number two, I want to send you out. Now I'm going to give you special power to cast out demons, but that power is to authenticate the message. I want to send you out with my message. And these are the apostles. They are the foundation of what's being laid as Jesus Christ is going to go away and leave them with the gospel message to go out and form his church And Jesus Christ said, and I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But as he does all of these things, he brings these men together and says, spend time with me and realize this is your mission. And that mission has not changed for the church today. What was the mission? Go out and give out the gospel. Do churches get sidetracked? Churches are known for all kinds of things. I had an argument once. I guess an argument's not a good word to use. I had a discussion, a debate with, with an old-time pastor one time who looked at me as I was getting ready to start here, and he said, you need to make sure your church is known for something. So build a gymnasium or put a huge cross out front that can be seen all over town or have some kind of a ministry, whether it be the shoebox ministry or something else. Make sure your church is known for something. And I thought about that, and I prayed about that and I felt guilty about that for a while until I thought you know what we need to be known for the gospel of Jesus Christ this church needs to be known for giving out the gospel and preaching the truth and having their doctrine square to this book and that's what we were called to do now there are wonderful things you can do in society but it's not the church's job the church's job is the gospel And if you want to do charitable things to help folks out, that's wonderful. But if we get our eyes off of the primary focus of what the church was called to do, Satan's happy with you sending out shoeboxes. And I know that some of you love that ministry. But if he can keep you busy sending out shoeboxes and never really talking to anybody in your town about the gospel, he wins. And it's not that they're not good. They are. If he can get you working down in the soup kitchen at the mission five days a week, but never talking to anybody down there about the gospel, he wins. And we feel good about all those things. But God didn't take 12 apostles and pull them apart and say, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn the world upside down with social programs. He said, I want you to turn the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if I'm staying focused and central in my life, I will give out the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if I'm not, I'm missing the boat. And so we need to consider that as these men were sent out, that's exactly what they were sent out to do. Now, as we conclude for the next about five minutes, I just want to go briefly. I'm not going to give you whole biographies, but briefly through these 12 men that Jesus calls. Look at verse 16. He appointed the 12. And I'm not even going to read the whole thing, but Simon and James and John. And you've got Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot. He appoints these 12. They're found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the lists. The lists are always in the same kind of structure. The same four guys are always listed together in every list. And it appears there's kind of a subgrouping of the 12 disciples. There are four disciples that are going to have a more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ than any of the others. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. 
You've got a second group that's a little bit more well-known and gets, gets working on things, but not near as well-known as that first group. And that group is Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. Isn't that an interesting group? Philip, Bartholomew, we don't know much about Bartholomew. We, we do know a little bit about Matthew. How many want to be in Matthew's group if they're one of the twelve? And then you've got Thomas. Thomas isn't even going to believe in the resurrection until he sees it with his own. That's quite a group. And then the last group. You know, if I had to be in a group, please don't put me in the last group. Because look at the last group here. You've got James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. You know those four men, we know more about what happened to Judas than any of the other three. In fact, I was researching this stuff. Everywhere I could think of this week to find out what's going on with all these men. What did they do after Jesus left? Where did they go? How did they die? There are so many stories out there for these, for these men. Because nobody knows a lot about what they did. I can guarantee you what they did. They went out with the gospel and they preached it where God had sent them. We don't even know for sure where. We've got ideas. The early church gives us a few things. But here's these groups. And in these groups, the same name always leads off the group. Because that, they, they probably had kind of leaders. You know, when you get four people together, are there, is there usually a leader in that group? Somebody just kind of takes charge. Group number one, who took charge? Peter took charge. Even if Peter wasn't supposed to take charge, Peter was going to take charge. That's, that's who Peter was. And Jesus Christ knew that. And, and then you've got Philip in group two. And James, the son of Alphaeus, in group three. But all of these groups going about. And there's a great deal known about the men in the first, less in the second, and even less in the third. Why is that? Well, let's talk about them first for just a moment. Simon Peter. Simon Peter was a spokesman for everybody. Simon Peter was an impulsive man of action. He often spoke before he thought a habit that got him into trouble again and again throughout the Gospels. You'll see it. Peter was one that the Lord would transform from an impetuous, impulsive man of action to a grounded, steadfast leader of the apostles. Who steps up on Pentecost and preaches? Peter. Who takes it on the chin when they start putting people in prison in Jerusalem? Peter. And so Peter's doing all of these things. And Jesus gives him that name, Peter. His name was Simon. He calls him Peter, the rock. And he plans that. It's like, Peter, this is what I'm going to do with you. This is how I'm going to change your life from this impetuous guy who's sticking his foot in his mouth all the time to being a rock and a foundation for the church as it goes forward. And God used him that way. And it's amazing. And Peter was there demonstrating Read Peter's letters. If you think of somebody who was probably harsh and could be a problem for people when he first met him and spoke his mind, wouldn't that be Peter? You find the love of Christ oozing out of the letters of First and Second Peter. It's almost in no others. God changes Peter's heart and infects him with the love, a profound love for Jesus Christ. And history tells us that Peter was executed as a martyr in Rome. Crucified upside down is what tradition says because he felt unworthy to be crucified in the same manner of his Lord. Then we go on to James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the two brothers. In fact, this first group is two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. You look at James and John, and the Lord gives them a nickname too. You know, and if the Lord gives Peter a nickname and Peter becomes the rock, that's kind of a cool nickname. And it's even more exciting when you know what it means as he's going forward. But now you get James and John, and he's going to give them a nickname. And their nickname is the Sons of Thunder. And it wasn't because they were great preachers. 
Jesus Christ gives James and John this nickname because they were known as being hot-headed and judgmental, and you see it even as they're going through the, the, the Gospels at times. And so Peter gets this nickname of, this is what I'm going to make you into, and James and John get this nickname and they say, this is what you need to forsake if you're going to follow me. Because it's a problem for you. You need to know that. And think about that. How many of you think of John that way? The Apostle John. He's the beloved disciple. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the book of Revelation. He had issues. And he only became what he became because Jesus Christ changed his life. And you've got James, the son of Zebedee, James, John, Peter, present at the transfiguration of Christ. James, the first one martyred in church history. His head taken away. And then John, the last one gone. Brother, why did God work that way? Because he had a plan. And these men were willing to do whatever needed to be done in order to be under the plan of God. And then you get Andrew, the final member of that first group. And Andrew kind of falls into the background a little bit, but I love Andrew. What do we know about Andrew? Very little, but the few things we knew, every time, almost every time you see Andrew highlighted in the Gospels, he's bringing people to Jesus Christ. If we could put nothing else on your tombstone when you laid to rest one day, then he brought people to Jesus Christ. Could there be anything better as that was the work of my life? You look at it, he brings his brother Peter to Christ. When they get to this predicament of all these people and they can't feed him, it's Andrew who brings the little boy with the five loaves and two fish to Jesus Christ. Later, there are Greeks looking for Christ and they come to the disciples and they say, we want to see Jesus. And they, Philip comes to Andrew and says, they want to see Jesus. And what does Andrew do? What Andrew always does, he takes him to see Jesus. Bringing people to Jesus Christ. Andrew, again, it's hard to know exactly what happened to him, but they say he was probably fastened to a cross. He was fastened to a cross. I love this story, and I don't know. It's kind of one of these things with these stories in church history that it's hard to really nail them down. But Andrew is one that they say, Andrew led a very important political person's wife to the Lord. And when he could not get her to recant, he was so angry Andrew gave his life. Now, I don't, it's hard to substantiate. I could see that happening. But we do know that Andrew was crucified. And when Andrew was crucified, tradition again tells us that he was also put on an X-shaped cross. But Andrew, instead of being nailed to the cross, I don't want to die like my Lord, he was tied to the cross and hung there for two days. And again, church history and tradition tells us that Andrew kept proclaiming the gospel to anybody who would walk by until his last breath. Bringing people to Jesus Christ. Philip, the leader of the second group. Philip was the one who openly wondered what they could do with bread for so many people. Andrew says, Jesus can take care of it and takes the little boy. Philip stands by wondering, what are we going to do? In the upper room, it was Philip who said to the Lord, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus responds to him, Have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Philip was a little slow to catch on, but no more slow than the rest of the disciples who had the same issues. And Philip, as we're told, one day he was either beheaded or crucified and martyred for Jesus Christ as he continued to give out. Once we get to the book of Acts, you don't see Philip. The Philip in the book of Acts is a deacon. It's not this apostle. And so we don't even know what happened to Philip other than he gave his life for Christ. Bartholomew began to follow Jesus through the influence of Philip. 
And as Bartholomew went, he's also known as Nathaniel. Jesus Christ said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. What happened to Bartholomew or Nathaniel? Again, we only know a little bit of what church history tells us. Probably went up to Armenia somewhere. There's three traditions about his death. Either was kidnapped, beaten, and drowned, crucified upside down, or skinned alive. Take your pick. None of them sound exciting. But Nathaniel gives his life for Jesus Christ again in the message. Matthew, the tax collector. We know he goes on to write a gospel. Tradition tells us he spent his life preaching to Jews, which makes sense when you look at the gospel that he wrote. And we know very little more about Andrew, or about Matthew, except that tradition tells us that he died a martyr's death, probably in Ethiopia. Thomas. Thomas is the one who said, let us go to Jerusalem and die with him when Jesus Christ said he was going. Thomas is the one who a few, a, few weeks later, a few days later looked and said, I will not believe until I see the marks in his hands. Thomas is the one who, when he sees the marks, cries out, my Lord and my God. And so you've got Thomas. And what happened to Thomas? Again, we never find anything in the scriptures about what Thomas did. Tradition says he was in India and later killed with a spear for his testimony for Jesus Christ. James, the son of Alphaeus, again, leads off the third group. Not much is known about James other than his father, Alphaeus, and his mother, Mary, who followed Jesus. There's no inclination of what he did or where his death took place. There's a lot of stories. There's nothing that's been able to be verified. Again, Thaddeus, very little known is about him. He's the one who asked at the Lord's Supper, Lord, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answers him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. And that's the last we see of Thaddeus. Except for that, church history again tells us he was probably martyred, maybe beaten to death with clubs, maybe an axe, maybe crucified, depend on which story, but he was martyred sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Simon the Zealot, his name suggests who he was. He was very anti-Roman. In fact, he and Matthew, the former tax collector for Rome, were probably interesting members put together in a group of 12. And tradition says that he died by crucifixion. Some say he was sawn in half, so I'm not sure exactly what happened to him. But he gave his life for the cause of Christ. And then Judas Iscariot. And we know the story behind Judas. He betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Later has remorse but not repentance and casts the silver onto the, the floor of the temple and he goes out and he hangs himself. From a human standpoint, these aren't exactly the 12 greatest opportune men to take the gospel of Christ out. And yet Jesus Christ not only picked them, but they in Acts chapter 17 verse 6 are described as men who turned the world upside down with the power of the gospel. God's power changed their lives. What do we do with these two stories? As we conclude this morning, where do we go with this? Number one, can I ask you, why do you seek Jesus? There were crowds who sought Jesus just for what he could do for them physically. And sometimes we get trapped. We come to church because we're afraid of what will happen to our family if we don't come to church. It's not much better than the crowds. We come to church because we, got God, we want God to do something for us. And if it's not change our heart and life to be more like Jesus Christ, we need to examine why do we come and do what we're doing. And secondly, are you willing to answer God's call to serve regardless of where that puts you? Think about it for a minute. When you identify with one of the apostles, how many times do you identify with one of the guys in the third list? Who wants to faithfully serve Christ and nobody knows what they're doing? Do you have to have a pat on your back to serve Christ? 
Do you have to have the applause of somebody else? I looked at somebody. I was frustrated. I thought, where did they go for sure? And they was like, well, we don't know. How did they die? Well, we're not positive. But we know one thing. They went out. And according to the book of Acts, the whole group turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. Are you willing to be like that? Do you have to be Peter if you're going to serve? Do you have to be James and John? You know, the, the apostles, they, they struggled over that. They argued over who was going to be the greatest. What could God do with those who are willing to be in group three and just love and serve him with all their lives so that the gospel will go out? What are you willing to do to serve Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for the principles that are there. Lord, we thank you that you, in your wisdom and in your power and in your might, choose to use weak vessels to carry the greatest message that's ever been given. Father, I pray that you'll give us the heart of those 12 men who were at least willing to follow Jesus Christ and the 11 who stayed faithful. God, use us in that way. May we be people who spend time with Jesus Christ and then people who go out to give that word of Christ to those who need it most. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.